We are in Samuel. In the original Hebrew Bible, the book of Samuel and Kings was pretty much two books. It was two books. It wasn't first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. It was two books. And the only reason that first and second Samuel got divided into two books and first and second Kings got divided into two books is because in the ancient world you wrote everything on scrolls. And you pre-bought scrolls. And you bought a blank scroll and you wrote on it and scrolls were 32 feet long. And when you ran out of 32 feet, you went to another scroll and thus second Samuel. So that's the only reason. But when you read through first second Samuel, you get the sense of like it's just literally picking up where the other one left off. So the original Hebrew Bible just had Samuel and Kings. Later, when the Greeks came along with the Septuagint around 250 B.C., they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, and they divided the book into four books. But they called them 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kingdoms. So it shows you that they saw even Samuel and Kings all together as one book. It wasn't until um, Jerome with the Vulgate in the 400s A.D., when he translated it to Latin, which was called the Vulgate, that it became first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, like what we know it today. So just know this is the book of Samuel. It is one complete story, even though it's divided into two sections or two volumes, if you want to call it that. Now the first word of Samuel is the word and. In Hebrew it's called a victol. And so it's and, and it basically means and, and, and. As in, so the idea is that when the authors were writing this, they saw this as a continuation of the previous story of Ruth and Judges and Joshua. The First Testament can be divided into three sections. The first section is the Torah, and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they are all linked together by this and, 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 and. And it's telling the story of Israel outside the promised land and how God has chosen them, developed them, built them, grown them, and delivered them to the promised land. Then when we get to the part of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a hinge book from the Torah into the next section, what's called the Deuteronomic History. The Deuteronomic History is Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And that's basically telling of Israel's life in the promised land. And it's all based on Deuteronomy. So as we go through Samuel, we're going to be interpreting Samuel a lot through the book of Deuteronomy. And that whether they're living up to that principle. And so God lays out all these principles. This is how you are to live in the land. And the question is, is Israel living in the land the way they're supposed to according to Deuteronomy? So we are in the Deuteronomic history. This, the third part of the Second Testament, and that also includes the prophets, because the prophets are speaking during the time of kings. So then the third part of the First Testament is what's called the post-exilic time period. And that's like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then the post-exilic prophets like Malachi and Zephaniah and then that kind of stuff. And that's kind of them coming back to the land after exile, but they didn't learn anything from the exile, and they just start doing everything they were, so they were doing previously. So we are in the middle of Deuteronomic history, and basically what we have is Moses, remember, brought them to the promised land in the book of Numbers at the very end, and they came to the promised land, and Moses was not allowed to enter it. So he passed the mantle of leadership to Joshua, and Moses was more of a prophetic leader, where Joshua was more like a military leader. So that leaves us in the book of Joshua, 
And over 14 years, Joshua conquers the promised land. And he doesn't finish the conquering of the promised land because God tells him to stop. And God tells him to stop because he wants the next generation to work for it, to not be handed a silver spoon, so to speak, to have to work for it and to appreciate what it's like to trust God to give them the ability to conquer the land. So that leads to the book of Judges. Now, Joshua led the most faithful generation Israel has ever seen and ever will see. There is no other faithful generation, even though Joshua screwed a lot of things up because he's human. Judges comes along, and basically Judges introduces that the next generation failed. And the next generation failed majorly because even though the previous generation was incredibly faithful to Yahweh, they did not teach their children about Yahweh. And this is the mistake that a lot of us make, is we think if we just live a good moral life and go to church and do Sunday school lessons that our kids will catch it. But they didn't really like intentionally make it a part of their house, living, breathing discussions all the time. And so the next generation, it says they did not know who God was. And so they did not know who he was, how to know him, how to have a relationship with him, how to obey him. And they began to screw up. So there are six major judges that Judges goes through. Othniel and Ehud are the first two. They're incredibly godly. They do everything they're supposed to. And then everybody else becomes a giant scumbag. And basically, you, over 300 years of the book of Judges, you see um, Barak, who's kind of a coward, and gives God an ultimatum. I'll only go if you do this. Then you get to Gideon, who starts off very cowardly, and he ends the book by skinning alive the people on the eastern side of the the Jordan River and creating an idol and getting everybody in Israel to worship it, including his own family. So not a really good ending for him. And then we get to Jephthah, who basically is really jacked up, doesn't know who Yahweh is, and sacrifices his own daughter to God, thinking that will give him victory. And then we get to Samson, who is just a basically frat boy with his entire life, just ruled by lust and desire, has no idea who God is, and just kills people out of vengeance even though he thinks he's serving God, or maybe he does, or we don't know, who really knows? And Judges basically ends with this repeating phrase, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Basically, if we interpret this in America, in America, the people had no good moral leader, and everybody just followed their heart. And that's basically the idea. So Judges ends with this horrible, massive, nasty, debauchery story about the Levite priest abusing women and women getting abused and the, the Civil War and all this jacked up stuff in Judges. And over and over you hear, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's repeated multiple times. That phrase is operating on two different levels. That phrase is setting you up for a theological principle that was taught in Deuteronomy that they should have gotten but didn't. But it's also setting you up for the book of Samuel. And in one level, it's operating in this way. As you're watching human leaders fail, 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 you're missing the point of the phrase if you think that the answer to the problem is a human king. Israel, God is the narrator is not trying to say that they had no king, human, therefore they did what was right in their own eyes, and if only they had a godly king, everything would have been okay, because he's just showed you how all of the human leaders have failed miserably. What he's showing you is that the true king is Yahweh, 
and they hadn't enthroned him in their hearts, so to speak, in a youth pastor kind of a terminology. They had not made him king over their country. They had basically decided to follow their own hearts and do what they wanted to. And because they had dethroned Yahweh in their nation, because it's supposed to be a theocracy where Yahweh was the king, they had gone out the wrong path. But at the same time, if you remember from Genesis, God created Adam and Eve to rule and subdue creation. He created us and creation for the purpose of us being the kings over creation and queens. And he did that only if we understood that we were viceroys or vice-regent. We were not the ultimate king over the planet. We are a vice-regent representing him as the image of God. So when you read that, you begin to realize, yeah, at the same time, God wants a human king. He wants a human king ruling. And so this kind of begins to set you up for David. And it leads you into Samuel, where Samuel is going to make the argument that David is kind of that king. But at the same time, as we go through the David story, you're going to realize this guy is a scumbag. And he's not really that great. And you're going to have to reconcile why is it that God calls him a man after God's own heart at the same time David's doing some really jacked up things that are so messed up, I wouldn't even let him be in the same room with my daughter, let alone date her in any kind of a way. Let alone be a godly example in a youth group or to a church or any of that kind of stuff. So why is the Bible moving you towards David, yet at the same time he's no different than any of the other judges? Because what is setting you up is for the climax that's going to come in Second Samuel chapter 7, which is the Davidic covenant that God's going to make. It's going to lay the foundation for Jesus, who will come from the Davidic line. And basically, David will show you what a godly man kind of looks like on one level, but he's also going to fail miserably on a different level, and we'll look at that. But ultimately, he becomes the channel or the pathway for the Davidic covenant that leads to Christ, who will be a human that God intended to rule over creation, but he won't be a failed human because he is the perfect God, the perfect Son of God. And so this is setting up. So Samuel is going to begin to lay these hints of this Messiah that will be more than human. Kings is going to just show you everybody missing it. And the prophets are the ones who are going to grab a hold of this God-King idea and go with it. So this is kind of what that phrase is trying to set you up for. On one level, it's saying Yahweh is the only true king. On the other level, it's saying, yet if you had a human who actually could obey the law of Deuteronomy, then they could actually lead Israel in a godly way. Yet, all these books keep saying no human can do that, which prepares you for the God-man, Jesus Christ. So this argument is leading to that. And that's kind of where we're going. Now, the setting. The book of Judges ends with basically Samson as the last major judge, even though there's a few stories after him. Judges covers about 300 years of history. The book of Samuel is going to cover about 100 years of history. It's going to zoom over about 40 years, and then it's going to really focus on about 80. So you've got about 40 years where you've got Samuel as the prophet. You've got 40 years of Saul ruling and about 40 years of David ruling. And that's what Samuel's mostly focusing on. And what you need to understand is that when Samuel is born in the book of Samuel, 
He is born a few years after Samson. They're, they're contemporaries of each other. So Samson would be like going into college, so to speak, when Samuel is being born. And so when Samson is dying, when we get to the battle in chapter 7, Samson has probably died just a couple of years before that war in, second, in Samuel chapter 7. And if you remember, if you've been reading, that's where the Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines. So we're talking about the book of Samuel is literally picking up from Judges. And so when we get to chapter 7, you should be thinking in your mind, Samson literally has just died a few years ago. And Samuel is just about ready to become the prophet of Israel. And so we're, we're talking about Samson's death immediately leading into the prophetic ministry of Samuel. So that's where we are in our setting. And what you're going to understand is that with the first person we're going to be introduced to, so to speak, is Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. But we're also going to be introduced to a priest by the name of Eli, who's also a judge. Which means Eli and Samson are judges at the same time. Remember we talked about that there were multiple judges ruling at the same time. The, the book of Judges only just covers six of them for whatever reason. So Eli is a judge and a priest. He will die, and then Samuel will become the next judge. And he will be the last of the judges. And it will lead into a whole new thing. Now you also, what we're going to talk about a lot is we're moving from a major transition here. Because Samuel is introducing a major transition where, yes, you had Moses who was a sole leader over Israel, but he still had delegated a lot of authority to judges on what we would think of like um, courtroom judges to help them. And then Joshua became a, a military leader, but he still had delegated his power to many, many other generals and leaders over Israel. And then we see those generals and the judges pick up after that. For all intents and purposes, Israel has been mostly ruled by local leaders over different places, like governors in America with no president kind of an idea. And they've been ruling. When we get to chapter 8, Samuel's going to take us through a major transition where we're, God's going to bring an end to the local leaders and introduce us into a sole monarchy, where one man is going to have literally all power over the nation of Israel. But at the same time, God doesn't want him to have a monarchy like the traditional kings. And we're going to talk about that complexity too. So that's kind of where we are. The book of Samuel can be divided into four sections. The first section is the prophetic ministry of Samuel. And that will kind of go from chapter 1 all the way into chapter 12. And then from there we have Saul. And Saul begins to reign, and we have his reign, which leads up to about chapter 16. And then in chapter 16, David is anointed as king, but he's not sitting on the throne yet. From chapter 16 all the way to 31, you have Saul and David as co-anointed kings and their conflict with each other. And then the last section, the fourth section, is the whole book of 2 Samuel, chapters 1 through 24, which is basically David's reign. And that book can be divided in two sections, too, where basically David reigned well and David reigned incredibly poorly. That's kind of how the book is discussed. And so there are basically three central figures in this book, Samuel the prophet, Saul the crappy king, David the crappy king, but somehow is called a man after God's own heart. And that's basically what the book is all about here. Now, the book is also 
bookend and structured with three poems. And the book is going to open up with a poem called Hannah's Song. And here she's going to introduce the major themes for the entire book. And what she and what you're going to think is like she just found out she's pregnant. She's going to have a kid and she's going to praise God. And you're going to really expect this great song about her praising God for having a kid. But really, the psalm is going to sound a lot like a military song about conflicts and Yahweh being king and destroying the enemies. And you're like, that's not the song I sing when I found out I was going to have a kid. So we're going to talk about that. But that introduces themes. And basically, the major two themes she's introducing here is that God lifts up the poor, and that could be poor financially or poor in um, spirit in the way Jesus meant it, and he brings down the haughty and the powerful and the wealthy. And that's going to be a theme that we're going to see all throughout the book of Samuel. The other theme she's going to introduce is that God is the one who empowers his anointed king. The anointed king has no power on his own. Only God is the power behind him. And so those are two major themes that we're going to see introduced in Hannah's song. Then, when we get to the second chapter of 2 Samuel, and David just found out that Saul and Jonathan have died, he sings a lament. And in that lament, he picks up the themes of Hannah's song and develops it in relation to Saul and Jonathan and himself becoming king. And so this becomes a pivot. So you have her song introducing the books, then halfway through, we pivot with David putting a new spin on it because now he is that poor little shepherd boy who's been lifted up, and he is that poor little shepherd boy who's been anointed and backed and empowered by God, who God did not empower and back Saul up. And so he sees the gravity of what he has in his hand. And so he sings that psalm. Then the very end of Second Samuel, around chapter 22, we see another song that David sings, and now he's looking back at a largely poorly lived life. And he's, he's now come to the realization that he knew at the beginning that he only had the power that he had because God gave it to him, backed him up. But it went to his head and he abused it and he, he ruined people's lives. As a result, his family fell apart and it destroyed his life and destroyed his kingdom. And now he's an older man looking back with many regrets and he's reemphasizing Yahweh really truly is king. And only when we submit to him and only when we surrender to him can our lives really not be jacked up like mine was. And then when we get to kings, he's going to give life lessons to his son Solomon. And you're going to see those words there where he's basically saying, be a man. And my definition of not a man is not what I thought it was back in Samuel. My definition of a man is obey God and surrender to him and let him guide you. These three poems are kind of the driving force throughout this book. So you're going to poem, narrative poem, narrative poem. And they're basically telling you how you're supposed to interpret all these historical events that we're going to be reading about. And the main idea here is God lifts up the poor and he brings down the haughty. And only if you submit to the power of God as ultimate king will any blessings ever be achieved in your life. And that's the main point of Samuel here as we go through this. The main purpose of the book of Samuel is to demonstrate that true human kingship is acknowledging and submitting to the person and the will of Yahweh as the ultimate sovereign authority over creation and nations. The true purpose of a human king, a human president, 
a human pastor, a human youth group leader, a father over a family, a president over a company, the leader of a ministry, the leader of a board, is it true power, true human kingship, true human leadership, true leadership is submitting to the absolute sovereignty of God. That when you realize that you're not the head of your board, Yahweh is. When you realize you're not the head of the church, Yahweh is. You're not the head of your family, Yahweh is. That's when you can truly be what God has intended you to be. And the book of Samuel is going to show you three men. And it's going to look at their lives and how much they did or did not acknowledge that truth and what was the fruit of that. And that's what Samuel is mostly interested in. Samuel, Saul, and David. Where did they acknowledge that Yahweh was ultimate king, that they should submit to his will? And where did they not? And what fruit did that produce in their life as a result of it? And that is the main purpose of Samuel, is to demonstrate that. This purpose will be highlighted in two major events in the book. And this will be 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12, where basically the entire nation is going to come to Samuel and say, We want a king. And in that, that tension of already having Samuel as their leader and then wanting a king, but they don't really want Yahweh as their king, the narrator is going to introduce this tension of Yahweh as king. And what, what, do the, what do the people want and what do they not want and how is it going to play out in their life? And, and Samuel is going to give this awesome speech that um, will make any good leader proud. And the second one is in, the, in chapters 16 through 31, where we see Saul dying and David becoming king. And what we're going to see is the fruit of Saul's life there. And what we're going to see is Saul's dying because he did not acknowledge Yahweh as true king. And the question that Neri is going to ask is, will David? Will David? Will David learn from that? This introduces to the second purpose. The second purpose of the book is to justify David as Yahweh's true king, the man after God's own heart. But once again, I talked about this tension here is David does not look like a godly man, yet he's called a man after God's own heart. And so there's this tension there as we go through there. And so the, 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 the main purpose is to show that ultimately in the end, if you've got to pick somebody, David is it. And the Bible is going to make a justification for why David is the king that Judges has been talking about. But at the same time, the whole theme of the entire Bible is saying he's not the king that Judges has been talking about. And this is going to, going to be very confusing as we go through this book because we're now getting into some very gray area. Before, God has just basically introduced us to really good people or really bad people. And we've been introduced to really good people like Abraham and Um, Joshua and Moses who had some major flaws or we were introduced to really bad people but now we're going to be introduced to a true human and we're going to see people when they're good they're bad and they're ugly and it's going to be very hard to say that's a horrible wicked person and it's going to be very hard to say they're an incredibly godly person because the reality is they're just human and it's going to be very hard to like David and not like him. And I hope you're going to see yourself in it because that's the point. And so Samuel becomes way more complex than any book we've ever gone through. And so I told you before, the Torah is like Bible 101 in college. 
And then when we get to the first Deuteronomic books, it's like 201. But now we're in the 300 and 400 level classes. And the narrator is going to stop telling you point blank, this guy's good and this guy's bad. And we're not going to get any narration from the narrator saying whether David is a good person or not, except for the man after God's own heart. And now you're left to, what do I know about the Torah? And what do I know about judges so far? How am I supposed to interpret these characters on my own now? And that's what the narrator is doing. You're on your own now, so to speak. And you're to figure out what's going on in these stories, which leads to a lot of misunderstandings. So those are the two major purposes. So the themes. There's three major themes in this book, and one I've already talked about quite a bit already, and that is the kingship of Yahweh. And the idea that this theme is that there is no king except for Yahweh. And true kingship, true leadership is acknowledging that you are Yahweh's vice-regent. And that's all you can ever be. And this is seen specifically in Deuteronomy, when Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, gives the criteria for the king. And we'll go through those criteria when we get to Samuel, and he gives his final, one of his final speeches. But basically, the whole point is that God says, on that day that you ask for a king, and you get a king, this is how he's supposed to rule. And the whole point of it is, you're going to get a king but all these rules make sure that you don't have a king. The point of the rules is to limit the power of the king and to keep him from becoming absolute dictator like all the other nations so that he will not become a tyrant like all the other nations. And the whole point is you can have your king as long as your king limits his power and you limit his power. And when he limits his power and it ends with, and he must read the Torah all the time. And when he does that, then he'll act in the way that he should have been and the way that Adam and Eve should have. And then he can actually be that godly king that Judges was looking forward to. And he can set us up. And so that's the major theme that's being developed here is, is the king going to try to seize absolute power like all the other nations? Or is he going to truly limit himself and submit himself to the power of God and become what Adam and Eve should have been and become what Christ will be? And that's, that's the ultimate test of all of our lives, is are we going to seize power and abuse it, or are we going to limit ourselves and surrender to God, like Christ did? When the garden, when he says, I don't want to die, and I could take all this power into my own hands, like in the wilderness, and do whatever I want, but not my will, but your will be done, even if it brings me to death. And this is a very powerful... I have a friend that told me this. He says pastor told him, and I thought it was so cool. When you really look at humans throughout history, most of the time when we're given power, we take it. And there, there might be some times that you pass up a job promotion or like a whole lot of power. But think about it, most of your arguments with your spouses have to do with power, who's in control, um, or I like it the way that I like it. <laughs> and, and, and even then, we, we, we take power. Jesus is the only person in all human power, history that was given all power and given the ability to take all power in Israel on multiple occasions and yet gave it all up <coughs> completely. And, and that's basically what Samuel is trying to introduce you to. That a, that a true godly leader is one when he's handed all power, he gives it all up. He gives it all up and humility and humbleness. And when he does that, then that's when God says, I, you're my man or you're my woman and I'm going to use you. 
and you will be a great leader even though you've given up all power because true leadership is being last and sacrificing not being first and the book of Samuel is introducing that idea can these human leaders do that and ultimately the answer is no and all through this it's also very important to understand that even though Israel is going to ask for a king like all the other nations, which means they don't want that kind of a king, and they're rejecting God as king, you're going to see that even though God has been rejected, and it feels like he's out of control because they've chosen a different king by the name of Saul, it's still Yahweh who picks Saul. It's Yahweh who anoints him. It's Yahweh who fires him. It's Yahweh who chooses David. It's Yahweh who guides him. It's, it's always Yahweh. And even when they've rejected him, Yahweh still is the king. And nothing happens without him. And this, this is very important for you to understand because once we go through Samuel, then when you get to the prophets and Paul and God says, I lift up kings and I lower them, that gives a whole new meaning to it. Because you have to understand, no matter what president we have, God put him in that power. Just like Saul is put into power by God. Now, we don't know exactly what reason that God put him into power, um, but there's multiple reasons than just being a blessing. That brings the second theme, and that's human kingship. And so on, this is the flip side to the Yahweh's king. And this is that human kingship is ultimately found in surrendering to Yahweh, which is basically the same thing as the first one. It's just on the other side of it. And this is important to understand as we go through this. And like I mentioned before, it is so important that you understand that the main point of David's life is not the narrator trying to show you that David is a good man. We have often misunderstood that. We have taken the phrase that he is a man after God's own heart. And unfortunately, that phrase has blinded us to many of David's crimes and atrocities. And yes, we know about that whole incident with Uriah and Bathsheba, but we often think, well, that's so blatantly bad, we can't ignore that. And we often think, yeah, but that was an exception to life, right? Because he's a man after God's own heart. So he can't be that bad of a person all the time. And the answer is, yes, he is. And that's what we must understand. The point of the story is not that David is a good man. The point of the story is what in the world does it mean for God to call him a man of God's own heart when he isn't a good man? How can he be both? And that's a very important thing. This is, I think this is one of the reasons, even though we misunderstand David a lot, I think one of the reasons we're so in love with David in his life is he feels a lot more like us. He is flawed, but he does have strengths. And this is the question that we have is like, how is it when I look at my own life and my weaknesses and my sins and my flaws and I think, oh my gosh, I'm a jacked up scumbag, but at the same time God loves me and he's using me and he has grown me and he has redeemed me and there are things that I'm doing well and I and how do you reconcile that? How is it that I am a child of God that has grown to become this amazing man or woman of God but at the same time I look at all these other things and I'm like, I'm a scumbag who deserves to go to hell. And, and yet God is in that saying, I'm going to judge and bring consequences for those sins in your life. But at the same time, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to redeem you. And I've called you child. I'm going to sit you on the right hand of Christ. And you're like, how can that be? And that's the David story. The David story is that God with that kind of a man. And I think that's why David, even though we don't fully understand him a lot of times, we can't help be attracted to him because we see ourselves in him. We see ourselves in him. 
And so this is an important thing to understand as we go through this. And that's where David is going to acknowledge this, because here's what's going to really mark David as a man of God's own heart. He is going to extort people like a good gangster that would make Al Capone proud. He's going to rape a woman and murder her husband. He's going to cut the heads off of people and carry his trophies for 20 years. He's going to do all kinds of stuff. He's going to collect multiple wives. He's going to do all these kind of things. And yet ultimately in the end, what you're going to keep seeing David do is when Saul sins and the prophet or somebody says, you've sinned, Saul says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It was okay because da, 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 da. But when Nathan comes to David and says, you're the man and you have sinned, David says, you're right. And he repents. And he says, whatever God wants to bring consequences in my life, I accept them. It's not going to be fun, but he is God. And when he's about ready to extort somebody and somebody says, you're about ready to kill a whole bunch of people who don't deserve it. He says, you're right. I've messed up. I'm wrong. And what you're going to see is Saul and David are both going to murder people. They're both going to hurt people. They're both going to abuse their power. They're both going to, but one is going to repent and the other is not. One's going to ultimately submit to Yahweh's power, even in consequences, and the other one's not. And that's really what God is going to focus on in this book, is what, when God looks at you and determines whether you're really truly a man or woman after God's own heart, he cannot say that because you're a good person. Because ultimately Jesus says, there is none who is good except for God. And there is none who are righteous. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. And there really, there's nothing that God looks at you and says, wow, you're an incredible example of righteousness. And yet he looks at us and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or Job was blameless. And you're like, no, he wasn't. He just accused God of being this jacked up God. How can you call him blameless? And God credited Abraham righteousness. No, he's passing his wife off and selling her off like a prostitute every time he gets in trouble. Okay? How can he be called and be credited righteousness? David is like raping and killing people, and God's like, you're a man of God's own heart. Because ultimately what God's looking at is, when I come into your life and convict you, do you repent? Or do you justify it? And ultimately, in when you realize that you're taking too much power and control, and you found that out, do you repent and give it up and surrender back to God again? Even in the consequences that you might bring in your life. You are a sinner. You are screwed up. You will fail. And no one can really call you good. But I, as Yahweh, can call you a man or woman after God's own heart based on whether ultimately in you want to know God. You want to pursue Him. You want to do His will. And when you do screw up, even repentance is obedience. And surrendering and submitting to him in that is the key. And that's a very important thing to understand as we look at Saul and David, and behavior-wise, they're pretty much the same. But in the heart, one is really trying to make Yahweh king, and the other one could care less. And that's why God says, he's my man. Not because he's righteous, but because his heart is after God's heart, even though he doesn't always do that. Does that make sense? And that theme is going to be majorly introduced in this book. 
And that's the thing that's going to be dealt with by Paul and Peter and James as they're taking Christ and putting him into us and we're reconciling that fact that I'm already saved but not yet. And how can God love me? Yet I'm not obedient. Yet I'm supposed to be obedient and I want to but I'm not. And that's what God is looking at. But ultimately in the end, are you pursuing Yahweh as your king and are you willing to submit to him? And when you fail to submit because you sinned, when people point the finger in your face, do you submit? Do you repent? And we'll unpack that a lot more as we go on. The last theme is the authority of the prophet. Now, we've seen a few prophets here and there. Moses is a prophet. Miriam is a prophet. Deborah is a prophet. We've seen random people come and go. But we've never seen an official office of prophet that has dominated the stories. And so as we transition into kingship, God is also going to transition us into prophets. And we're now going to have prophets as a main office. Not a prophet over there doing prophetic things, but a prophet as an official office in Israel. In the beginning, you're only going to see one, Samuel. And then later you're going to be introduced to Nathan and Gad simultaneously. And every once in a while you're going to see these other guys that pop up that were unnamed called the man of God or the prophet. But as we get to the book of Kings and Israel gets bigger and bigger and more powerful, what you're going to find is that there's going to become an entire prophetic guild. And there's going to be thousands of prophets all ruling at the same time. And in one case, Elijah is going to be the head of the prophetic guild. What you're going to see is that prophets are going to become more dominant. And, of course, when we get to the prophetic books, they play a major role. There's never a time that Israel doesn't have a prophet. And we're being introduced to this. And the question is, why has the prophet become more major now? And the reason is because Israel wants a king. But before they have a king, they must have a prophet. Because the prophet's the one who's going to guide them. Because here's the thing. The prophet is a prophet because what makes a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks the will of Yahweh to the people. A prophet is someone who takes God's will and speaks it to the people. Now, unlike what most people believe, a prophet is not someone who predicts the future. There are, that, that's the Greek way of thinking. And Greek mythology and stories and all that kind of stuff prophets know the future all the time. Have you ever seen movies with the three old witches and the eye and they'll go to the oracle of Delphi, they'll go to the prophet there, or the wishbones and the bones and the ruins and the tarot cards and all that kind of stuff. It's always about knowing the future, knowing the future, knowing the future. That's a Greek way of understanding. If you go through the prophets, what you'll find is literally probably less than 1% of what they actually say in the prophet books is actually predicting the future. Most of the time, if you really read the prophets, and most of it is, you screwed up. <laughs> You're sinning. And let me tell you all the ways that you've sinned. Dun, 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 dun. And because of that, God's going to punish you with an invading army that's going to wipe you all out. That's mostly what prophets say. So when everybody's like, oh, I would love for a prophet to come and speak to you. Oh, no, 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 you wouldn't. <laughs> they very rarely have anything good to say. And most of the time what you find is because they have nothing good to say, nobody likes them, they're called traitors, they're ostracized, and because they're isolated from everybody, they don't have anybody in their life constantly telling them how to be right, and so they end up becoming really weird and abnormal because they're isolated from the community, and they're called a traitor and they become suicidal. Because they're preaching a message that nobody likes, 
and it's always negative all the time and nobody likes them and everybody wants to kill them and that's depressing. That's really the job of a prophet. And so a prophet is someone who speaks the will of Yahweh. Now, if we were not sinners, it might be a little better position to be involved in. But a prophet is someone who speaks the will of Yahweh. Now, why are they able to speak the will of Yahweh nobody else can? Because a prophet is someone on the divine counsel of Yahweh. Now, I'm not going through that, but I just did that last couple months ago. Go to my website. There's an audio on what is the divine counsel of Yahweh. And it's very important to understand that. And I think you'll find it very interesting and challenging in all kinds of ways. But the divine counsel of Yahweh is basically God has this counsel, what we would call angels in heaven with him. And what God does is there's only one human that he invites into that council, and that's a prophet. Not one person, but one kind of human, and that's the prophet. And the prophet is the only human on earth who is allowed and invited into the actual heavenly realm to hear God speaking with his angels and making decisions about the planet. And because of that, he knows more than anybody else does. Or she knows more than anybody else does. And so in that way, he literally has a direct link to God. Back in the day, in the 80s, we'd probably say a telephone. Today, we would say texting. So he has a direct link or she has a direct link to God. So when he speaks, he can say, thus saith Yahweh. And no one else can. Because no one else is hearing God's voice like he does. And so before there can be a king who will be tempted to have absolute power, there must be a prophet who anoints him, will keep him in check, and fire him if he takes too much power. And he knows when to and when not to because he actually is in the divine counsel of Yahweh. And God is not going to put, and here's what you must understand. You say, well, why does he just do that for the king? Oh, because that would make him abuse it even more. If you had absolute political and military power over the nation, as well as God's voice, then you can make God say whatever you want if you begin to abuse power. But if you split those two, prophet and king, then the king has the political and military power of the nation, but the prophet has the voice of God. And the prophet is less likely to abuse it because he doesn't have that power. And the king can't say, oh, yeah, God said that, because the prophet can say, no, he didn't. And you must understand that the prophet then has the right to pick the king and fire the king when necessary. And he's the one who keeps the king in check. And what you're going to find is the ultimate authority is Yahweh, then it's the prophet. But what you're going to find is the prophet doesn't usually speak to the people. The prophet speaks to the king. And the king then becomes, the prophet becomes the voice of God, and the king becomes the arm of God to make it happen. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the king makes it happen. When the king becomes corrupt and he begins to fail to do that, then the prophet bypasses the king and goes straight to the people and begins to judge them and condemn them. And so that's what you're going to see. When we get to kings, you're going to see the prophet bypassing the king. Because no king is interested in Yahweh anymore. And it go right to the people. And that's what we're more familiar with. Is Obadiah and Malachi speaking to the people and telling them how they screwed up. But the way that God intended to be is the prophet is the voice of God. Because he's on the divine council. He then goes to the king and the king executes the will of God. So he's literally the executive branch. He's the one that makes the will of God happen. 
And the prophet's job is to speak the will of God to the people, keep the king and the people in check. And when they do not listen to that voice, he pronounces the judgments. Now, here's the other thing. That means the prophet has a lot of power too. Because he can be corrupted and make Yahweh say whatever he wants as well. And he can bend and manipulate kings to his will. But what you're going to find too is when the prophet screws up, God immediately kills him. Now you're like, wow, that's really harsh. Yes, but if there's not that harsh penalty hanging over his head, then will there really truly be a fear of not abusing his power? And only when the prophet knows, the minute I say, thus saith Yahweh, and he didn't say that, I'm going to die, then the prophet knows I better not speak wrongly. So right now we're going to be introduced to prophets who are very godly, very in check, and thus saith Yahweh is always right. When we get to kings, we're going to see the prophets starting to become corrupt and waving too. And that's going to be a whole new thing. The prophet is the one who is going to guide the king. He's going to be the one who speaks to the king and keeps the king in check. And that's very important because you would think that the book about kings would begin with Saul, but the book actually begins with Samuel because before there can be a king, there must be a voice from God to the king because that's the only way that Yahweh can be the absolute sovereign king over everybody. Now today, what is unique is that Christ becomes that prophet for us because he not only is on the divine council but he is the divine council and in that way he is able to become prophet and he is able to be prophet and king because he is the voice of God and he's the one who executes the voice of God perfectly and because he lives inside of us we are now able to be called prophets not in that we prophesy the future but now we can know the will of God through prayer and the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and we don't have to go to some guy or some woman down the street and have them pull out tarot cards or something like that. This is the transition we're going to be moving into.